This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Welcome to Dusting for Prince. I'm your host, Lorimer Schenner. Welcome to a special edited version of Dusting for Prince for Discover. My guest is Omri Rose, host of the hugely popular Shadow of Truth podcast, which tells the story of the brutal 2006 murder of 13-year-old Israeli schoolgirl Tahir Rada and the man wrongfully convicted in her death and the search for the real killer. Let's jump in with Omri Rose. So Omri, it's terrific to have you here today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your Shadow of Truth podcast opened to a large audience. Yeah, I mean, it was extremely exciting when it launched. First of all, we, we were lucky enough to have a built-in, you could say, fan base or audience in that it's an adaptation and an expansion on a very popular, actually an Israeli uh, Oscar-winning documentary series of the same name shadow of truth that then was on netflix those are both in hebrew and this is the first english offering of this story uh, which also has new information and details on it and of course they have to listen to you coming up so that'll boost it that's right yeah i am i was fortunate so fortunate to work with you on one episode we uh, recorded that that was same week i think that the retrial was announced is that right Mm mm-hmm yeah, I believe it was just going on. And of course, now he's released from prison. It's an important development for sure. It's fascinating to me. And that makes me, maybe leads me into a question. You know, how much of that attention and spotlight that was drawn to the case, how much of that do you think impacted that decision to release Roman? Well, I think fortunately, I was able to speak to a number of very interesting guests, one of which was uh, Professor Azi Levon. And he's an expert in social media and the facts that it plays on cases just like this, you know, social media activism, specifically in criminology and kind of these amateur sleuths coming in and trying to solve cases. And we've seen this in other cases around the world where media attention and amateur detectives, let's call them, have uncovered different things or brought enough pressure through attention to reevaluate certain cases. And I think it would be very naive and and foolhardy to think that the amount of attention on this case didn't sway in some way the retrial and the the fact that that it even happened. From the beginning in Israel, this has been one of the most controversial and media focused cases that there have been for a number of reasons that you'll find out if you listen to the podcast now streaming on Wondery. (laughs) Um, And the amount of pressure that continued to exist on it, even years after the the trial and this movement that came about trying to um, release the Roman Zadorov who was accused of the murder certainly played a part in that. And I think many, many, many cases sadly exist all across the world in many different countries of equally or perhaps even more heinous or controversial cases, but we just don't hear about them. No. What you don't know, you don't know. And if a 
if a tree falls in the wood, do you hear it, right? Well, if if a murder happens and someone's accused, but no one knows about it, it's the same kind of situation, unfortunately. No, exactly. And I know, you know, work like, you know, some of the things that are that are happening in the U.S. around the Innocence Project mm-hmm. and things like that have definitely helped to, to bring attention to those cases. Absolutely. But it's, like you said, it's, it's a bit of a drop in the bucket. That was one of the things I was really curious about in terms of you and your background as an actor, a voice actor, um, podcast host. Tell me about sort of the level of interest you had in the Tayorada case and how you became involved. Well, I'll, I'll split it into a couple of different sections. First of all, I wasn't particularly aware of the case. Even though I am Israeli, I didn't grow up in Israel, and I certainly um, wasn't so clued into what was happening in the zeitgeist of social media and and that kind of stuff during the time of the trial and all of the stuff going on because I was living abroad. So I wasn't so aware of, of the events that happened. And how did I get involved in the podcast specifically? Well, it, it's kind of like a situation of when it rains, it pours. As you said, I'm, I'm an actor, a voice actor. I write all, all this different stuff. And like many people, when COVID hit, it kind of readjusted the, the playing field. And I was focusing on podcasts and I have two podcasts in development at the moment, uh, one of which is coming out this week, in fact, of our recording called Spies and Lies. But as I was involved in all these things, this opportunity came my way through one of the producers who was working on it, knew I was a voice actor, knew I was doing some other podcasts as well. And it kind of all coalesced into me getting involved with this project. Yeah, it's such a neat medium in in that. It really is. Uh, uh, it's just so flexible. And- I adore the voiceover field. I mean, it's it's just something that, like you said, is so flexible. It's so much fun to explore and play in. And I was very fortunate to have developed a, um, a great voiceover career through some supportive agents. And it's just, it's fun. You know, it's really just a lot of fun to do voiceover work. You know, I think it's the, it was probably the perfect uh, thing to have had on your CV when COVID hit, I would imagine, mm-hmm. to be able to, to fall back on that or to, or to, you know, explore it more in detail and in depth, um, yeah. you know, as a, you know, not just a way to make a living, but a, but a way to be creative and, and like you said, have fun. You know, it's funny because during COVID, even though a lot of things slowed down in the industry, for me, I was still traveling and I I actually shot a movie in the middle of COVID in Ukraine, where of all things, I played a detective. It was, it was a weird time, but for me, it was actually a, a good time professionally. I was able to really focus on a lot of work that I wanted to develop and certain opportunities just kind of came together. So it was it was a very dynamic, interesting time for me. And I was well positioned, as you said, by having the voiceover stuff and certain projects kind of ready to be baked. One of the things you popped in the oven right at that time was Shadow of Truth. And I, I'm really interested for you as somebody who really is sounds like you were sort of a child of the of the world and and you didn't grow up in Israel. How much trust in the Israeli police did you sort of inherently have? How did your, if at all, how did your feelings towards the, the justice system in Israel evolve as you worked on this? That's a great question. And I think Israel is such a fascinating case study in police in general, because 
it's well maybe not a case study but it's a unique bubble because the police's function in israel i feel is slightly different than its function in a lot of other countries and i'll explain what i mean by that israel with um all of its uh, beautiful and complicated history and political situation has certain uh, requirements on its citizenry and on its defense and security forces. So first of all, you know, there's mandatory military service for Israeli citizens. And so one of the things with that is you have a lot of soldiers because they don't stay in the bases overnight necessarily. You have a lot of soldiers going up and down the country with firearms. You also have a specific branch called border security, which is kind of like a military branch of the police. And so they do a lot of security operations in different places. And what this eventually all leads to is that the actual Israeli police department really primarily functions more than anything in giving speed tickets, which, which might not be so different from other countries, but when it comes to actually policing the public, Israel is fortunate that within Israel's society, there's not that much violent crime, certainly. There's petty crime, thefts, and burglaries, of course, but violent crime is actually quite low. We have a couple mafias and gang situations that have their own conflicts. Doesn't usually spread out to the citizenry, um, but as far as actually policing like murders and violent crime, there really isn't that much. So what I'm getting to here is that Israeli police on the whole doesn't have this reputation of being violent or unjust or anything like that. It just has this kind of stereotype, I suppose, of what do they really do? The heavy lifting is being done by other services and detectives kind of always sit outside of that police perception, I feel like. You know, I feel like right. when people think about police in America, let's say, and there's a lot of feelings towards police from different angles, but those feelings are usually directed towards the men in blue and women in blue rather than the detectives who usually are plain clothes, if I'm not mistaken, or do a different function. So <laughs> the perception is, first of all, not very active. There's not really much of an opinion. And if there is an opinion, it's, oh, those are the guys that just give speeding tickets. And that's kind of about it. And the heavy lifting is being done by other people. I'm so glad that you explained kind of that landscape for us, because that was something I was really curious about because of the mandatory military service. It, men do three, women do two, and there's also uh, a okay. national service option, which is not a military type service. There's a couple other different ways that you can do um, national service. Usually when, let's say, something bad happens in Israel, it's actually not a police officer who's the one that is quoted as, let's say, pulling out the gun and getting the bad guy. It's usually a security guard or a border control agent who's in the area or a soldier who's off duty going home or coming back from home or if you're in combat you carry your gun everywhere you go when you're not on the base so they sometimes do different things so again just trying to give the picture of the perception of like police gun violence 
and that stuff doesn't happen really here in Israel. Its citizens in Israel feel very safe. You can go in Tel Aviv as a woman in two in the morning down many, many, many different neighborhoods and feel very safe. So this crime really would have rocked Israel then in, in so many ways. Yes. That, that's another reason why this, this crime was so heinous and so surprising. Again, I'm not trying to say that murders don't occur. Absolutely murders occur. There's domestic violence like every other place. But, you know, and revenge murders or people getting, you know, that stuff happens. But something like this, where it seems to be unmotivated or kind of not easily placed as A led to B. Like, why was this girl? There's no no reason. It just doesn't make sense, which is why it's so surprising. It's like things like this don't happen here was kind of the feeling, right. which is why it garnered so much media attention. And of course, the details around the case. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just such a, it's such a horrific crime and our listeners really should listen to Shadow of Truth because it's just a fascinating, fascinating case of wrongful conviction. And, and I think definitely police tunnel vision in going after the man that they ultimately put in jail. Mm-hmm. What kinds of things do you feel contributed to to that whole dynamic with the police and why why they focused so so exclusively on Roman Zadorov? What led to it? I think you know you hit it you hit it uh, right on the nail in that it was this tunnel vision. They have to get their their guy. The chief of police in in the area actually gave them a time time limit. You know, we need to have we must have an arrest by a certain amount of time. So there was a sense of time pressure. Like we said, the the horrificness of the case led them to really want to get someone. And so all these time pressures and media pressure and personal desire to avenge this heinous act, I think drove them to once they found someone where the shoe could fit, they made it fit. And that's always a danger. And it's something that actually I discussed recently in my podcast that's coming up, Spies and Lies, that when you're gathering intelligence, if your objective is to prove a certain bit of information that you um, suspect is true, your intelligence gathering is going to form a bias to prove that. You know, if your boss says, prove to me that there's an attack coming, then the information inherently is going to want to a prove your boss right because he's your boss and b be directed in a way to try to find if that is right rather than keeping everything open so when they found zadarov and they were pinpointing on zadarov this could fit we need to close it he could fit let's do it let's find it well this makes sense this makes sense what about this no this has to make sense even though it doesn't there's probably a reason so let's find the reason rather than, wait a minute, maybe this doesn't make sense. What could be other options? It all kind of coalesced together. Yeah, and I think it sounds to me, I mean, there was so much in this case that resonated for me when I when I first learned of it. And, you know, it's like that expression, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And <laughs> That's a great expression. It is, and it's really true in policing and in terms of wrongful arrests and conviction and um, the whole phenomena of tunnel vision uh, because you see it all the time I've certainly experienced it and I wonder in this case too how much of that was also 
just what you had alluded to earlier around the rarity of these kinds of cases. And, and you know, sometimes people assign a lot of things to to the police in terms of, you know, some really malicious intent when it can really be put down to incompetence or just a lack of experience with a certain type of case. Mm-hmm. And this really sounded like that to me. I, I had never heard of a police official giving a timeline <laughs> in within which uh, an arrest and a, and a, had to be made in, in such a... Publicly, not, not even privately. You know, this is a public thing creates a whole slew of issues. It does. And and the amount I can't even imagine the amount of pressure on those detectives to not be able to let the case unfold as it should. And most murder cases a lot of a lot of your headway as an investigator is made in those first 24 to 48 hours and you know having a deadline is not to say that they may not have have made an arrest in that time frame anyway, but just you know, certainly if you don't have a solid suspect or solid evidence that you are essentially pulling it out of thin air to make it fit this particular person who might be the best of a really weak group of suspects, setting yourself up for a disaster, which is what happened. How much of the investigative work, if any at all, did you do on the development of, of the story in trying to even interview all the different people involved in the case? How easy was it to have, to get access to these people? How or how reluctant were they to speak with you? Again, great question. I came on after the docu series um, had already aired and had been on Netflix afterwards, and you know, just when the podcast was coming together. So a lot of the people who had already spoken to the documentarians uh, were either willing to speak again, or they already had all the material they needed for them. My involvement with finding people to speak with came more in the bonus episodes, the special Q&A episodes, which we spoke to you, among other people. And I actually was involved in the producing and writing of those episodes. So I can tell you, for those, we had a whole list of people that we wanted to speak with for different kind of ideas and directions. And... It was not the easiest to get people to speak, actually. I think a lot of them were Israeli, of course, and because the case is quite controversial, they were not interested in maybe stepping foot in that. One of the people we wanted to speak to was actually Zadilov's lawyer at the time of the retrial, and of course he was neck deep in that, so didn't have time. We had even scheduled a session and everything, and then... I was sitting on my audio software waiting for him to come on and he just didn't show up. So it, it we had a, a bunch of different, different kind of challenges. Another person we tried to speak to was one of the students who was a classmate of Tahir's who was accused. And similarly, discussions began, was very interested to discuss with us and share her thoughts and then kind of just got ghosted eventually down the line. So it is not always the easiest thing to step foot into controversy. No. This is a very controversial case with a lot of intrigue still going on. For instance, there's a character who we call Masha in in the podcast who's filed a lawsuit against the documentarians for the way she's portrayed in the documentary. 
I'm sure the podcast the podcast will will follow suit in a lawsuit by her as well. But so far, it's just targeted on the the actual documentary series. Even though one could argue, I think quite rightly, that her portrayal is based on the facts that exist. I think it's important to remember at the end of the day that documentaries, podcasts, all these kind of things are not the truth wholly at the end of the day. You know, they are a presentation of truths or facts or information as seen by the people creating said documentary. And objective truth is very, very difficult to find. Who do you think killed Tairada? Who do I think killed Tairada? Well, I can tell you who I don't think killed Tairada. <laughs> okay, let's start there. I, I, I don't think Roman Zadorov killed Tairada. And that comes from everything in the podcast and documentary that I've learned through working on it, but also speaking with Professor Saul Kassin, who was one of our guests on the Q&A, and he's actually basically the guy who wrote the book on false confessions. He works with the Innocence Project. Before his work, it really was not something that was particularly understood. And if you listen to the Q&A, you'll hear his thoughts on the Zadoov case. And again, he it's not to say that with 100% certainty, we know X, Y, or Z, but if you have a checklist and you're ticking boxes on things that usually exist when false confessions exist, you'd be ticking a lot of boxes. Absolutely. I think, is there a chance he killed her? Sure, there's absolutely a chance. I think it's quite minimal, and I think there's a much higher chance that it was someone else. Of course, the latest news in Israel since Zadorov's release is actually that there's new evidence against him now. So this might change everything, which, you know, we'll see. I find that shocking if there is, but, you know, I'm, I'm not a zealot who is blind to having my opinion changed. I await just like everyone else to see what kind of real concrete evidence can exist because at the moment there's no real concrete evidence in my view and many people's view that he is the one who did it. No, I feel the same way. It's funny, before you said that, that there was the possible existence of evidence against him, I would have said to you that I not only think it is unlikely that he did it, I think it's almost impossible. But uh, yeah, I'd be curious to see what they have. I'd also, I, I think I would also await it with a large degree of caution and, and skepticism. 100%. Um, I mean, admitting that the police were wrong at this point it would be just, you know, if the police admit that they're wrong and that there isn't evidence, what does that say about the whole procedure? Everything, you know, is this some big cover up? It, it's tough. On the other hand, if the police know they're wrong, then the killer's still out there. It's, it's kind of this thing that we see in cold case situations, TV shows and all this stuff. But I guess, the more and more I, I grow older and learn about the quote-unquote justice system, unfortunately, the more disillusioned I become with, with it worldwide. I'm the host of Dusting for Prince, Lorimer Schenner. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to hear more of this episode from Omri Rose, please look us up wherever you get your podcasts under Dusting for Prints. In the meantime, here's a little hint of what's coming with Omri. We talk about Omri's latest projects, including one about two gay interior designers who hook up with a Colombian drug lord, and another about Omri's father, a very influential spy. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, <laughs> the podcast opens with me going, so there I was, sitting at work, just a normal day, and then I got a phone call. It's my friend Jan, a producer from Hollywood. Ring, ring, ring. Omri, you're never going to believe this. I met these guys, and it's an incredible story. Dusting for Prince is a limited six-episode series and an action figure media production. It's written, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Lorimer Schenner. Music is by John Sib from Pixabay. Thanks for listening. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.